Well, if you were here last week, I tried my best to explain why this tool bag is up here, so I'm going to just reiterate it. Um, we're, trying, we're going through this, this sermon series through the summer where we're going to have different people share and, 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 and talk about different things where we, we hit this word entrusted. And it comes from 1 Thessalonians, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And, and Paul wrote these letters, just so you know, to equip the churches. There, there, wasn't, a whole lot of, uh, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of training available to early church leaders. So it, it depended on the apostles and the, the ones that were coming out of being, being shepherded and, and discipled by the apostles. That's where the training and equipping was coming from. And so Paul was... As, as time went on, there were more and more churches established and planted, and a lot of the equipping was coming from him into some of these churches. So letters were how he equipped the church. Letters were how he explained to them uh, what was happening. So he'd get reports back, and he would address certain issues. And, you know, in some churches, he was addressing a lot of issues. In some churches, he wasn't addressing a whole lot of issues as much as he just was encouraging them. But in the church in Thessalonica, he's, he's equipping them, and he's trying to explain what this ministry to the Thessalonians was and why. And in chapter 2, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he says this, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And there's a whole lot there. We unpacked that a few weeks ago. But we're going through this series this summer. We just want to keep coming back to that word, entrusted. That word entrusted, like what does it mean to be entrusted with something? It's not somebody saying, hold my beer. <laughs> That's not necessarily being entrusted with something. When you're entrusted with someone, it's somebody saying like, would you mind you know, keeping my kids for the weekend? Would you, would you mind, uh, you know, would you, would you hold this or would you care for this for me? We have to, you know, like I have a cousin that, that's in the military and if he leaves on a deployment, he and his wife leave a lot of their valuables with friends back here to sort of care for them, like whether it's a pet or whatever, to, it's entrusted to somebody else. And so what Paul's saying here is, essentially what he's saying is the preface is, I'm not always going to make you happy with what I say. That's one of the prefaces he's giving. Not everything I say to the church in Thessalonica is going to make you happy. But I'm not speaking to you to make you happy. I'm not speaking to the church in Thessalonica to please you. I'm speaking to the church to please God. And that comes from someplace bigger than me. I have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. And with that in mind, every part of Paul's life was given to him, every breath, everything he owned, everything that he was, was given to him as a tool to further the gospel. His life was a tool bag. And, and depending on what situation he was in, he could dig into something else. Now, Paul wasn't a man. Once he followed Jesus, he lost a lot of his earthly wealth. He depended on the church to really keep him going. And he, he had a side job as making a, a tense. So the, 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 uh, um, the adage is that if someone's doing ministry and has a job also, they call that person a tent maker. And that comes from 
Paul, who made his side job uh, making tents, and that's how he kept himself going and fueled the ministry whenever he needed some income. But the church also would come alongside Paul and say, hey, when you come into our city, you can stay with us. We'll give you a place to live. You always have a place to, to stay. And that was Paul's life. Because once he, once he had Jesus, he moved forward with that, and that's all that really mattered to him. And everything about his life became about furthering the gospel. So we're trying to get back to that in our lives as everything that we are, everything that makes up who we are is just a series and a collection of different tools and resources used to further the gospel. We've been approved by God. Our identity, like the song said, is we are who He says we are. That's where we've been talking. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we're going to continue to talk about throughout the summer. Any baseball fans out there, uh, i got a little Phillies quiz for you. I just want to know who coined the phrase, you got to believe. Tug McGraw, right? If you were to ask a Phillies fan who is, not in, not in modern day because our manager doesn't believe in closers for some reason, but if you were to say who is the best closer in Phillies history, there's a big group of people that would say Tug McGraw was the best closer in the history of the Phillies. He won two World Series before that with the dreaded, sorry, Andrew, New York Mets. It's part of his history, so we have to talk about it. Uh, and, and then he, he would probably still be on television as an announcer today if it hadn't been for a sudden change in his health in 2003. He, he was told he had a brain tumor, and doctors told him at 59 years old that he had about three weeks to live. Three weeks. Get your affairs in order. He lived another nine months from his diagnosis. And he poured the rest of his, that nine months into his family. Into trying to figure out what was, what was going to be left behind about Tug McGraw. It has to be bigger than I was a good baseball player. And there was something in his life that he had forgotten and had ignored for a long time. And it was that he had another child. Now, he was married and had kids of his own, but he had another son, and he had ignored that son for a long time. The woman's name was Elizabeth the Augustino, and she never told her son who his father was, in part because she just wanted to move past that part of her life. But her son found his birth certificate, and he made a really shocking discovery that his favorite baseball player of all time was his dad. And Tim Trimble changed his name to Tim McGraw. And he found his dad, and, uh, and there wasn't anything there. Tug wanted nothing to do with him. There were no warm feelings. There was no immediate connection. There's no future. But as an adult, Tim tried again. And the second time, everything took. And there was a father-son relationship that started, as strange as it must have seemed at the time, they got really, really close. When the news came that the time was running out, they became even closer, and in the end, Tug McGraw even died, his last, took his last breath in Tim McGraw's house in Nashville, where he was receiving his end-of-life care. If you're a country music fan, Tim McGraw wrote a song in 2004 that was on top of the charts for 10 months, Live Like You Were Dying, and he wrote that song about his dad. So it led me to this question, would it make a difference if I learned I had very little time left? 
Would it change the way I was living? Would it change my decisions? Would it change where I was headed and what I was going to do? You see, Tug realized that at the end of his life, because he was given the gracious gift of knowing when his clock was probably going to run out. And he treasured, he realized what he treasured at the end of his life. He realized what the biggest treasures in his life were. So if I were to ask all of you, if we were to sit down across the table and have a cup of coffee together, and I, and I just said, what, what do you treasure? What would be your answer? What, what would you say, I, I treasure? Think about that. And what we treasure rises to the surface pretty easily when we look at how we spend our time, our talents, how we spend our finances. So what we treasure in life is really what gets top billing, right? It just seems to make sense. The things that you're, spe- you're invested in, the things that you, you draw, your thing that no matter what you will make time for, Megan and I get to do uh, a, a decent amount of premarital counseling. I did a wedding yesterday with a couple. The young man was uh, an intern with me in uh, Martinsburg whenever I was there, and I got to do his wedding ceremony yesterday, which was really great. But I think that the coolest part about all that is the, the wedding ceremony becomes like the, the culmination of this cool relationship we've developed with this couple because we've gone through premarital counseling with them. And when we talk about communication, one of the rules that Megan and I suggest that a couple lay out for themselves is to, is to not use the terms never and always. Don't say something like, you never do this, or you always do this. Because if you're not God, you never or always do anything. God's the only one consistent enough to never or always do something. So we, 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 we try to explain that to people, but, but I want you to keep that expression in mind because I'm going to use the words always and never this morning, and it's three things we want to look at today. I've been interacting with some people on uh, just, just trying to get some critiques of my sermons, and, and uh, two different people told me that uh, it would be easier to follow you if you gave us some points. So, uh, so I, I'm not saying that that's a bad criticism, I just send, I tend to communicate what's in my head and sometimes it doesn't come out. So I'm giving you three points today, okay? If you're a rigid note taker, I'm hopefully trying to help you because it helped me, if I'm being honest, it helped me process my thoughts to put it this way. But there are three big, three big things, three big things we want to look at today. You remember uh, we talked about motivation a few weeks ago? We talked about what, what motivates People, whenever uh, we looked at Acts chapter 11 to close out that section of our Acts series, we looked at these, these men who were stepping into a territory they had never been before and camping out there for a whole year. They, they didn't get their affairs in order. They didn't say, hey, I've got to find a new job. But we, all we see is that they decided to go into Antioch and live with those people for a year to disciple them on how to exist as a healthy church. What motivates someone to do that? It's got to be something bigger than just something I want. Or, or if, I, if you go to work every day to provide for your family, there's something motivating that. Those motivators don't always have to be holy for you to answer that question. 
But I believe that if we can get to the core question, the answer to the core question, what, is our, what are our motivators? What's motivating my behavior in this movement? What's motivating my decisions? What's motivating how I'm using my money? How, what's motivating how I'm using my time? What's motivating how I'm using the talents and abilities that God gave me? What's motivating those things? I think if we can get to the core answers to those questions, we'll start to see the big gaps in our life where we're not really trusting God or the place in our life where we feel like we do have a, a deep and healthy dependence on God. So my first point is that something always motivates our actions. Something always motivates our actions. Look with me at Matthew chapter 13. It's on page 565 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 13 is this uh, awesome, (laughs) if you were sitting at Jesus' feet on this day, you would have just been inundated with awesome stories. It seems like Jesus just keeps going one after another, after another, after another. These awesome stories that Jesus is telling, these parables, these stories that teach a deeper lesson and a deeper truth. Again, that's Matthew 13, page 565, if you're using the Bible in front of you. In Matthew 13, though, he says this, this perplexing thing. He gives two different parables and, uh, that we're going to look at, and, and I, I think they could have been pretty big head scratchers for people, but I, hopefully we can make sense of it all. Matthew chapter 13, look at uh, verses 44 through 46 with me. These are Jesus is saying this. He's saying, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went on and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, that can be kind of perplexing to us. It can be kind of a head-scratcher. So let's just look at what he's saying. Picture with me that there's a, a guy doing... You ever see the people at the beach with metal detectors? You know, let's say there's someone in a, in a vacant lot, and they're, they're running a metal detector, and they dig down, and they find this box just full of billions of dollars worth of treasure. It's just sitting there for years. The lot's for sale. This person goes, they sell everything they have. Everyone thinks they're crazy. They sell everything they have and buy this vacant lot, overgrown, ugly, vacant lot. And people are wondering, what's wrong with this person? Why would they sell their vehicles, their clothing, their their electronics, their home? Why would they sell everything they own to buy that field? And all of a sudden, whenever they show you the treasure that exists in that field, it all makes sense to those around. It's the same analogy with the pearl, this merchant that's looking for pearls, and he finds one, and he sells everything he has so he can have this one of great value. Because if this one was worth more than all the others he could ever find combined, that the treasure that's in the field was better and more costly than anything this person could ever afford or ever have. That's the picture that Jesus is giving. And see, when I say something always motivates our actions, that's what I'm getting at is Jesus is saying the same thing. Something always motivates your actions. 
Some of our motivators can be easy to diagnose. If I'm frustrated, I can tell you that my actions are coming out of my frustration. I'm being motivated by I don't feel good or I'm a lack of sleep or I'm just, I've just had a bad day or whatever, right? We can, some of our motivators are easy to diagnose and some of them are, are harder to diagnose. But what, what Jesus is saying is that if you treasure me above all else, you will start to see that I am worth more than anything this earth could ever give you. And if that can be your motivator you will start to function out of healthy gospel living. That, that if, if Jesus... See, the paradox about this is that in, in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus, we sell all of our stuff, we buy the field, we get the treasure of great worth that nobody could ever compare their treasure to that treasure. And then we get that treasure and God gives all our stuff back. He lets us have it. I heard a pastor, when he's talking about tithing once, he said, we always get hung up on this 10% thing, that people have to give 10%. They have to give 10%. He said, tell me a job where you have a 90% commission rate on anything that you get. And his point was, it wasn't the percentages. It wasn't the numbers. It was that when we have a healthy perspective of who owns our stuff, it's a whole lot easier to understand why it's important to be sacrificial in what we give back to the communities in which we live and the, the churches that we're involved in. What Jesus is saying here is the beauty of the gospel is better than it all. And when I say all, I mean it all. The beauty and the power and the story and the truth of the gospel is better than anything you could ever earn anything you could ever buy, anything you could ever get handed down to you, any tradition, any characteristic, anything. Anything you could ever give birth to, anything that you could ever raise, anything that you could ever perform at work, anything you could ever earn and hang on your wall, all of it pales in comparison to the beauty and the treasure of Jesus Christ. And and. I would venture a guess if you're here today and you've had this moment where you have surrendered your life to Christ, where you've said, I know I am in desperate need of grace from a holy, from a holy spot, you realize that in that moment. Take yourself back to the moment where you understood the grace of Jesus and, and were redeemed from sin for the very first time. That, that moment where you received this eternal gift of salvation from a loving and gracious God. The moment where you felt true and total forgiveness for your sins. And I know in that moment you understood this passage. It's usually every day from that day on where things get a little bit foggier. Something always motivates our actions. What we treasure motivates our actions. So something always motivates our actions. And what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven is the thing that should motivate your actions, even if those around you say you're crazy, even if your family tells you you're nuts, even if, even if people say, I don't want anything to do with that, even if people say you're, you're, you're an insane person and I just can't trust you, even if people say this Jesus is a whack job and I can't believe you give your life over to him, I'm out. You still say that the kingdom of heaven is better. It's the best. It's the all-sufficient thing that I need. The beauty of the gospel is better than all. Now keep that in mind. Number two, something always is our treasure. Something always is our treasure. 
So if something always motivates our actions and our treasures are what motivate us, something always is our treasure. Uh, Flip over to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10. I think that... uh, I think that this was, this was brought up at the end of last week's message. Mark chapter 10. That's on page 584 if you're using the Bible that's here. Something always is our treasure. Listen to this interaction in Mark chapter 10, looking at, starting at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I think we get wrapped up in the wrong thing in this passage, by the way. Just just to preface, I think we get wrapped up in the fact that this guy had a lot of stuff, and, and, and we focus in on that. And the heart behind what Jesus is saying is bigger than the fact that that he was rich. It's bigger than that. So, as Jesus is getting ready to leave someplace, a man runs up to him and kneels down in front of him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus, remember in 1 Thessalonians what it says? When Paul says that we teach to please God, not to please man, what does it say that God does and why that motivates him? When Paul says that he's motivated by the gospel and motivated to preach and teach truth, that's motivated by the fact that he's been approved by God and trusted with the gospel. And it also says what at the tail end of that verse? It says that God looks at his heart. That's exactly what's happening in this moment with this young man. Jesus is seeing this young man's heart. It's a mystery, but he is, he is God in human form in this moment. And he, sa- he looks at this young man, and he knows he's sort of a zealot here with obeying the rules. And he says, you, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. And he doesn't even get through all the Ten Commandments before this young man interrupts him. Yeah, yeah, teacher, I've done all that stuff since I was a kid. I, I've obeyed all those rules since I was a kid. I've... I've never broken the law. I've never sinned, is what he's telling Jesus. And, and the thing that I love here that, that I tended to look over for a long time is Jesus, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He didn't look at him and say, you're an idiot. Who do you think you're kidding here? No, he looked at him and he loved him. And he said to him, now listen, I want you to know this is Jesus saying this to him, and it's motivated by love. That's what Mark tells us in this gospel, that Jesus is about to say to this young man to go do something very, very difficult, because he's looking at this young man's heart, and it's motivated. The words that Jesus is about to speak to him aren't said to prove a point. They're not, they're not said to prove to this young man how wrong he is. They're said and motivated by love. 
And in this moment, the most loving thing that Jesus can say to this guy is, go, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. He's going back to this, this treasure principle that he teaches in, in the parable in the book of Matthew. He says, and then you will have treasure in heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, disheartened by this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What motivated him were his treasures. And something always is our treasure. We are going to all in this room, just this, this collection of people, we're all going to fall somewhere different on the wealth scale from an earthly standpoint. Some of us are going to, we're going to be able to, to come into a situation and, and be able to say that we have, we have more wealth by earthly standards than other people, but we all have it. And that's not all that Jesus is talking about here, but what he does is he sees this man's heart and he sees the real thing that this man needs to lay on the line. This guy's a rule follower. Jesus isn't going to get his attention by saying, you know the law. You know what it takes to connect your heart back to God. He knows that because he's looking at this young man's heart and he sees in his heart that he is, he is latched on with a death grip to his possessions, to his things. And Jesus says, go, sell it all. Then you will obtain the treasure in the field. That's what he says to him. And he walked away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He walked away sorrowful. Something always is our treasure and something always motivates our actions. Our treasures motivate our actions, and we always have a treasure. When Jesus says later on to another, uh, at another moment of his teaching, when he says, unless you are willing to forsake father and mother and sister and brother and family and friends for the sake of the gospel, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. It's all interconnected. It's all saying the same thing. You're, you need to find your worth and your value in Christ alone. That's the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. So what's that, what's that first one? The first one, something always motivates our actions. And step, number two, something always is our treasure. And number three, Jesus is always worth it. Jesus is always worth it. Jesus never disappoints. Jesus never leaves us in the dust. Jesus isn't the father that we go back to when we're estranged and, and say, I want a relationship with you like Tim did with his father, Tug. And at the, front, at the front end of this, Tug said, I'm not interested. I've got a wife. I've got kids. You just go be you. That's not Jesus' reaction to us. What he's trying to teach this rich young man is that I promise you I'm worth it. We see this time and time again, whether it was Barnabas in the book of Acts where we see him sell his possessions and, and give those to the leaders of the church to say, give these to people that need it. 
Or whether we see people like Cornelius, who was obviously wealthy and had a whole house full of servants and family living with him, and he brings Peter in and says, my house is your house. We don't see Cornelius sell all of his stuff. That's not what was commanded of him. We don't see Cornelius have to give that up. But what he does do is he says, my house is your house. Make this your base. Teach us about Jesus. And that's what happens. The apostles camp out at Cornelius' house. And that's where the church really gets started. And if you read ahead in the book of Acts, you'll see that the church's base of operation shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch. And we have to make the assumption that Cornelius' home is sort of like ground level base for the gospel moving into Gentile territory. So when Jesus said, go and sell your possessions to this young man, that wasn't a command to all of us. It was, it was him looking at this young man's heart and saying, I know what you treasure, and I know what's motivating your actions. Get rid of it. Get rid of it, because it's not me, and I promise you, I'm worth it and I'm better. That's what Jesus is saying. And in Cornelius' story, that wasn't necessarily what had to be taken place. Cornelius had to set aside potential loss of job, potential loss of prominence and position, potential loss of income because his, his uh, government officials that paid his salary and put him on staff were a pagan society. Now all of a sudden this guy's walking with and loving Jesus. He put all that on the line because he said, it doesn't matter to me. What matters is Jesus. And his whole household gets baptized by Peter. And the church explodes in the Gentile territory out of his house. How cool is that? Cornelius understood something the rich young ruler didn't. And it was that Jesus is always worth it. If I could word it a different way, I'd say Jesus never disappoints us. As a father, it's dangerous if I look at my kids and say, I will never disappoint you. Because I've only been a dad for a little shorter than, than 11 years, and I don't want anyone keeping track of my massive amounts of disappointing moments. Jesus never disappoints us. He never makes a promise he doesn't come through with. That has been his character since the day he spoke the world into creation. He is a good, good father. He has our best interests in mind. And when your best interests collide with God's best interests, you will start to see what you treasure. And you'll start to see what motivates you. As a parent, it's really hard to wrestle with the reality that my kids aren't the center of my world. They're not the end-all, be-all. They are not. I think kids can become the biggest idol in the history of the church because we believe the lie that everything we have needs poured into these young people. And that's true if our motivators were pointing into something eternal, which means I need to pour myself into something eternal, which means I need to feed myself with something eternal, which means my motivations need to be motivated by something eternal. Meaning that if my sons and my daughter pursue a career somewhere where they make next to no money, but they love Jesus with all their hearts, I am happy with that. Meaning that if my son's riding on the back of a trash truck, which when I was growing up was like the ultimate example of not doing something with your life. 
What do you want to do, ride in the back of a trash truck? When I was a kid, I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. It looks kind of cool. Meaning that as a parent, if, if my kids are pursuing Jesus with passion, I couldn't care less if they have degrees hanging on their walls. I will celebrate if they do, if that's what they're doing to pursue Jesus. And I think we can, we can keep that on as a parent. As a father, I feel that earthly pressure put on me to make sure my kids perform well. Now, I'm trying to break all kinds of stereotypes because I'm a pastor, and pastor's kids have a pretty bad rap in our culture. They're always the bad ones running around the building. My kids don't do that, though, so it's okay. (laughs) You don't want to wrap yourself up that your kids have to carry your reputation as their responsibility. And doesn't it seem like that's something we do? We, we, we harness our children with our reputation. And if they don't live up to our expectations, they're somehow tarnishing my legacy. That's, that can't be our motivator. I have a pretty generic last name. So I can't say that my kids need to honor the family name. And if you knew my family... They're doing a really good job already. It can't be motivated by those earthly things. Or my kids will grow up to be adults that feel like failures. And so are yours. If we sit in this room over here across the hall or in this one down the hall and we teach our kids to be nice and kind individuals who say nice words and treat each other with respect, and that's where we stop. The second they don't do that, they're failures. That's what we've told them. But if we can point these people to Jesus, if we can lead our homes, men, to point people to Jesus, to point our spouse and the people we come in contact with at work to Jesus, to say, I already am a failure. I already am scubala. But what Paul says, don't look that up. It's a pretty nasty word. I am just garbage. I am the worst of the manure pile outside of the city apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only thing in me that makes me good. Jesus is the only thing that makes me productive member of society. Jesus is the only thing that makes me a better husband. Jesus is the only thing that makes me a good father. Because I serve a good, good father. That's who he is. And when I stop and I think about the ramifications of of unearthing the treasure in the field and getting rid of all my earthly possessions, it's more freeing. And I realize that my motivators are something eternal, something bigger. So I'll ask again, what do you treasure? What motivates you? What's the deep-rooted motivator? If it's something temporal, you will be disappointed. If it's something temporal, I will be disappointed. So whether you and I accept it or not, we are who God says we are. Whether we want to accept that truth or not, I think we live in that tension, accepting that truth or not. 
that the real bedrock of our lives, of our marriages, of our ability to be an influencer as a guy, I'll speak to the guys. Really, Father's Day is a celebration of influence, isn't it? We're celebrating the influences in our lives. When we celebrate, remember that word, celebrate Father's Day, we are celebrating the influencers in our lives. And the Word of God tells us, the song told us earlier, that He is a good, good Father. That's who He is. That, that is His defining characteristic, one of many, right? So whether I accept that or not, I am who God says I am. We're going to close with a song that tells us all about that. One of the words in the song we're closing with tells one of the lines, it says that I am chosen not forsaken. I'm not the last kid on the playground anymore. I'm not the last one waiting to get picked for the team. I'm not the one standing there with them saying like, eh, we really want you on our team. I am chosen by God himself, approved by him, and entrusted with his message that he died to cement for all humanity. He entrusts us with that. You're approved by Him. You are who He says you are. Listen, if you haven't experienced failure in life yet, you're lying to yourself. Maybe you're a perfectionist like me. You should be laughing at that. That is not, that was a joke. And maybe in, in, in our pride and in our arrogance, sometimes we can have ourselves convinced that we've found a good formula and we're perfectly fine. We're in a good rhythm. Things are going well right now. And in those moments, we're the rich young ruler who's coming to Jesus and saying, like, uh, how do I get eternal life? Because things are going pretty good for me right now. It seems like that's the only thing I don't have. So just tell me what it is. I'll bang it out real quick and we'll be, we'll be set here, God. And Jesus looks at this young man's heart and says, here's the thing that's holding you back. Cash it all in. Sell it all. Get rid of it. And whatever proceeds you make, give to the poor. Yeah, the poor. The ones that you've been critical of, the way they spend the money and the way they spend their time. Those people. Give it to them. Then come follow me. When you got nothing left in this world, you'll come follow me and you'll realize you just got the treasure in the field. And it's the best treasure, bigger than anything you could ever imagine. So something always motivates our actions. Something always motivates our actions. Something always is our treasure. And Jesus is always worth it. You are who he says you are. Father God, you are an amazing and, and crafty God. A God who gives and gives and gives and gives. And the only thing you get in response is our, is our adoration, is our praise, is our worship. And in your infinite grace, that's what you desire from us.
Father, we, we know that your word tells us story after story of moments like this, but I think of Job who lost everything this world could have given him. And, and if, we, if we take our eyes off of the real point of the story, we could, we could see the end where he got everything back and think that was the point. But the point of it was that at the end of all of the trial, he knew you deeper and more intimately than he ever thought possible. So God, allow our identifiers, the things that define us, be you. May we accept this truth. May we, may we realize that we are broken and fallen individuals and find freedom in the fact that you have released us from the bondage of performance. We only have one entity to please, and that's you. Thank you for the treasure in the field. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection that is assuring our place in eternity. Thank you for the trials that we will step into the second we leave this building, knowing that we have a faithful God walking ahead and with us and behind us. Thank you that we have the promise of eternity when the brokenness of this world will all fall apart. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to be concerned, overly concerned, and worrisome about what this world looks like. I just need to focus my eyes, attention, and gaze on my Creator God because I am chosen. I am not forsaken. I am who you say I am. So God, may you, may you ingrain that in the hearts of your church. And may we be humble enough to receive it.